This morning we sang about the song about the balm in Gilead. And I'm thankful this morning for that balm, for that the great physician that we have who is able to heal us, is able to heal the sin-sick soul, as the songwriter says. It's a blessing to be here and have his presence with us this morning. I want to greet all of you in Jesus' name. It's uh, good to be here this morning. This morning I would like to uh, preach a message from the story of Joseph in Genesis. And uh, actually, Lord willing, I'd like to preach several or a series of messages. I don't know how many yet exactly from the life of Joseph. But just for a bit of a background and setting to the story of Jonas, Joseph in uh, Genesis, this story is found in Genesis chapters 37 through 50, actually a, a fairly large portion of the scriptures is devoted to this story. For some dates, some chronology, the book of Genesis spans 2,369 years from creation to the death of Joseph in 1635 B.C. Now, Noah's flood was approximately 2,348 B.C. And Joseph was born about 1750 B.C., which would be approximately 600 years after the flood. Now, those dates, of course, will vary some according to the sources that you use. I'm using James Usher and the dates that he gives for that. So Joseph was born about 600 years after the flood, uh, 1750 B.C., He was born while his father Jacob was serving Laban in the what is now Syria today, north of the land of Canaan. And I'm sure we're all familiar with Joseph's family. His father was Jacob. His grandfather was Isaac. His great-grandfather was Abraham. And his great-great-grandfather may not be quite as familiar, but he, he was Terah. So the story of Joseph actually begins with the story of Abraham. Abraham was born in the city of Ur in Chaldea, which would now be southern Iraq, close to the country of Kuwait. Most of us are familiar with the country of Kuwait because of the Persian Gulf War a uh, number of years back. But um, Kuwait is, is right next to the Persian Gulf. But Abraham would have been born in southern Iraq, down close to the Persian Gulf. Sometime after Abram or Abraham married Sarah there in Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham and Sarah with his father Terah and his nephew Lot moved about 600 miles north, northwest to uh, Haran, which is now modern day Syria. And probably most of you have heard the name of the city Aleppo. Aleppo, I guess it is. That was in the news lately in the uh, conflict that's going on in Syria. Abraham would have lived close to that city in Syria when they moved up there to northern Iraq. 
after Abraham's father Terah died in Haran, God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We have those that famous promise where God came and spoke to Abraham. He said, Unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old, when he departed out of Haran. God spoke to Abram, and Abram Abraham obeyed. He moved out of Haran. He moved about 400 miles south now to the land of Canaan, this land that God had promised to give to Abram and his descendants. And from them, he said he would make a great nation. And from them, he said, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Of course, a promise of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In Canaan, God told Abram, Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a son. Of course, they disbelieved that because they were old. But at least Sarah laughed at him at first. But we know that Isaac was born, the promised son. Isaac grew up. He married Rebekah, and they had two sons. Jacob and Esau were born to Isaac and Rebekah, twins, but not very much alike in any way at all. And we know the story how that uh, Jacob grabbed Esau's heel. Jacob was, Esau was the firstborn, but Jacob, um, God had promised, would be the greater, basically. But these twins grew up to be two very different men. They were at odds with each other many times. Jacob connived and tricked and did what he had to to steal the birthright, first of all, from Esau, and then also the blessing from Esau. And then to escape Esau's anger and the revenge that he felt was coming, he fled back to his mother's people, back north to Syria now, to Haran, that area where his mother came from. <clears throat> and there he met Rachel and he loved her. And because his uncle, or yeah, his, <clears throat> excuse me, his uncle Laban tricked him, he ended up marrying Leah and Rachel and working seven years for each of them. <clears throat> God blessed Jacob with 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Jacob ended up serving Laban a total of 20 years, 14 years for his daughters, and six years for his cattle. It was at the end of those 20 years, toward the end of those 20 years that Jacob was serving Laban is that Joseph was born. So he is still in the land of Haran. He's still serving Laban and Jacob is born. God finally blessed barren Rachel with a son 
and he was the son that Jacob loved more than any of his other children. The scriptures tell us he loved him because he was the son of his old age. Something that I learned recently in studying and in, in looking into this account of Joseph was Joseph was Jacob's age. Jacob was 91 years old when Joseph was born. That means he was 72 or 73 years old when he met Rachel at the well. I've always pictured Rachel as being a young woman. Um, here she was marrying a 72 or 73 year old man. Now, Jacob wasn't uh, an old man as we would think of an old man. At least I don't think he was. If he was 72 or 73 when he met Rachel in 91 when Joseph was born, that means he was probably around 93 when he wrestled with the angel the night before he met Esau when he was going back from Haran on his way back to Canaan. He met God. He met an angel and they wrestled that night. And the scriptures tell us that Jacob was able to prevail and to... Uh, to get the angel to bless him. He got what he was looking for, although he limped. He halted on his thigh from then on. But apparently at 93 years old, he still had some physical strength, a lot of physical strength. So Jacob lived to be 147 years old. And so even at 93, I think he had a lot left in him. He was not uh, obviously what we would think of as a 93-year-old today. He was still strong and healthy at 93. So that's a bit of the background. And obviously, I've left out a lot of details. There's a lot more that, that we could talk about in the, in the setting of the story of Joseph and what all led up to it. But I wanted to, to give you some of that background for two reasons. First of all, Background gives context to the story. When we know when and where and how the story of Joseph fits with the rest of the Bible, it really helps us to understand the story better. It makes more sense. The pieces fit together. Things connect. History, and especially Bible history, is not a recording of many individual and isolated disjointed stories. Rather, history is connected and intertwined. It works together. There's cause and effect. Things happen one day because of what happened in the days before. The choices of men affect the generations after them and so on. And that kind of leads right into the second reason of why I wanted to give you some background to the story of Joseph, because I want, I, I think it's important for us to understand that the story of Joseph in Genesis is part of a bigger story. It's part of the story of God working with his people. It's a story within a story. Joseph developed into a man of character and integrity and faith because at some time in his life, he understood that life is not just all about himself. There was something more going on than what was happening to him. Joseph was dealt with an awful set of circumstances. Terrible things happened to him. Circumstances that had the potential to destroy his faith. The things that happened to Joseph could have 
very easily made him dissolve in self-pity. It could have caused him to blame God. It could have caused him to blame his brothers, to become bitter, to allow revenge and, and bitterness to eat up his life. But Joseph was able to make the right choices in the middle of bad circumstances because he believed that God was doing something greater than himself. I'm convinced of that. If Joseph would have not had that vision, he would have never been able to come out the way that he did. <clears throat> That's a lesson for us. As we go through life, it's important to keep the perspective of the big story, and I, I say big story with a capital B and a capital S. It's easy in life to focus on myself, on what is happening to me, my goals, my dreams, my decisions that I need to make, my future, my circumstances. Why do I need to deal with this situation? Why is this happening to me? Why is such and such a person a thorn or a trial in my life? Those are questions that we tend to focus on in our lives. And yes, God is intimately involved in our lives. He cares about us. He knows the number of the hair that we have on our heads. He sees the sparrows that falls to the ground that dies. God does care. But like Joseph, we need to strive to keep the perspective of God's big story. God is up to something bigger than you. He's up to something bigger than me. And there's a lot of times that we don't see or understand how, but God is at work. We can be assured that God is at work. He's moving in the shadows. He's moving behind the scenes. He's orchestrating events. He's making things happen. He's connecting things over here. While we are over here and can't see them, He's moving people to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. And we can see all of that in the story of Joseph. Although Joseph couldn't see it, God was at work. He was moving. All Joseph could see at, at, for a long time in his life was the circumstances he was in. And yet, I believe he had this vision, purpose, that God was doing something bigger. And he didn't understand it all until it all worked out. But God's story is bigger than you, but He wants to use you in it. If you're a child of God this morning, you are part of the greatest, the grandest, the biggest undertaking that the world has ever seen. God is building a kingdom kingdom that is going to fill the earth. It's going to take over the whole earth. He wants to redeem the entire creation back to Himself. That's what God is doing in this world. So, And you are a part of that. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're a child of God, you are a part of that. When I have that kind of perspective, it does two things. It, first of all, it humbles me kind of puts me in my place. Yes, God cares about me and we can have an intimate relationship with Him. And yet, we need to understand that the things that are happening to me are part of a bigger story that God is orchestrating. So it humbles me. It also gives me motivation to get involved. If we 
if if the essence of our Christianity is the salvation of my soul, okay, we're probably not going to be very effective Christians. But if we get a vision for the kingdom of God and for what God is doing in the world, it's going to give us motivation to get to work and to be involved and to engage in that. So remember that your story is a story within a story. Joseph's story was a story within a bigger story. It was oftentimes, we could probably say it's a story within a story within a story. God had a plan for Joseph's family to bring them down to Egypt to preserve their lives because he knew there was going to be a famine coming. So that was part of Joseph's story. But also God wanted the nation of Israel to be in Egypt to to uh, multiply there. And he wanted to call them out and set all of those types and things that we see with the Passover. That was part of the story. It was all part of God's big story of bringing the nation of Israel to the place where he wanted them and preparing them for Jesus Christ, the coming of the Messiah, the salvation of the whole world. See, God is doing big things. And many times we just see what's happening to myself. But we need to see the big perspective. All right, Genesis chapter 37. Turn with me there. Genesis 37, verse 1 through 22. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably with him unto him. And Joseph dreamed they dream and he told it his brethren and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed, For, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and, lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And, behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his brethren, and he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. 
And he said to him, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seeketh thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, and therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him of their hands to deliver him to his father again. So Jacob and his family are now living back in Canaan. Again, Joseph was one or two years old when Jacob left Laban to go back to Canaan. Now he is 17 years old in this story. So this is probably 15 to 16 years after Jacob has left Laban. Rachel is no longer alive. She's died immediately after giving birth to Benjamin, Jacob's youngest son. Jacob's father Isaac has also died. Jacob and Esau were able to be reconciled enough to bury their father together. Isaac lived at least 20 years after Jacob deceived him and stole Esau's blessing. And that, I think, is worth mentioning because I've often had the idea that when Jacob went into Esau and went into Jacob, Isaac and deceived Isaac and stole the birthright, the blessing from Esau, that Isaac was practically dying. But Isaac lived to be another 20, at least another 20 years afterwards, because Jacob served Laban for 20 years, came back to Canaan, and actually Rachel died before Isaac died. Rachel died on the way back to Canaan. And soon after that, apparently, is when Isaac passed away. But here in Genesis chapter 7, 37, Jacob and his family are now living in Canaan. And it's not hard to see by reading this scripture, this chapter, and, and also a lot of the other chapters leading up to here that things are not really good in Jacob's family. There's bad things happening. There's bad things going on. Joseph's father, Joseph is the favored and the loved, the, the most loved son. The other brothers hate Joseph because of that. Things are not good. And for the rest of the sermon, I'd like to think about four things that contributed to this unhealthy family dynamic in Jacob's family. Why were these things going on in Jacob's family? Why, why were they not happy together? Why were they not able to function well together? 
what what was the reason for that of course we don't know all the things all the the um things that may have happened but there's some lessons that we can learn i have four things number one is polygamy jacob was married to leah and to rachel and in chapter 30 of genesis you can read some about how this all went off in jacob's family the situation is basically two jealous sisters vying for the attention and love of their husband. And if that wouldn't be enough, on top of that, Jacob has two sons with Leah's handmaid and two sons with Rachel's handmaid. So essentially, Jacob has four wives and children from all of these wives in the same family. Leah had seven children. To her were born Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and then also a daughter, Dinah. Rachel. To Rachel were born Joseph and Benjamin. To Zilpah, which was Leah's handmaid, were born Gad and Asher. And to Bilhah, which was I'm sorry, Zilpah was Leah's handmaid. Bilhah was Rachel's handmaid. To her were born Dan and Naphtali. So 13 children from essentially four different wives, four sets of half-brothers in the same house, in the same home. Can you imagine the drama and the feelings and the tensions that are coming out of this that this situation is bringing? We only need to look at creation to understand God's design for marriage. God created Adam. He saw Adam needed a, compa a companion. He put Adam to sleep. He took a rib from Adam. And from that rib, he made a woman for Adam. God's plan for marriage can be easily defined in six words. One man, one woman for life. That's, that's how it is. It's simple. It's beautiful. It works. When man corrupts God's design for marriage in any way or form, there's going to be problems, there's going to be consequences, there's going to be negative things that are going to happen, and that's what's happening in Jacob's family. The world will never admit that, the media will never talk about it, but the corruption of marriage that we see in America today is making big, big problems in America. Now, you may be thinking, we don't have those problems. We don't, we don't have a problem with polygamy. We don't have a problem with divorce in our setting. We don't have to deal with gay marriage. Those things are out there. They're in the world. We, we don't have to worry about that. They're far from us. But I think even something that may seem insignificant, such as taking liberties that are not yours to take in courtship, are going to corrupt marriage. They're going to damage God's design for marriage. Even those seemingly small things. So polygamy was one of the reasons that these dynamics were going on in Jacob's family. Number two is partiality. In verse 3, here in Genesis 37, it tells us, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age 
and he made him a coat of many colors. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children, and he didn't try to hide it. He was very open about it, apparently. Uh, that's just how it was. He openly display, displayed his special love for Joseph by making him a special coat, a unique multicolored coat. Now, Jacob and his sons were shepherds. And they were probably wore the rough, simple clothes of a shepherd, just a one piece, a plain one piece brown garment that I picture coming, covering the shoulders and coming down to the knees, something that was, you know, gave them the freedom and the of, of running and working outside and so on. But this coat that Joseph made that Jacob made for Joseph was something different. It was unique. It was uh, very likely more of a long robe type of garment, more befitting to the rich people, to the upper class. His coat was more what you would likely see the government officials or the, the rich city men wearing, not something that a simple shepherd would wear. And to Joseph's brothers, this coat became a symbol of Jacob's favoritism to Joseph, and they hated Joseph for it. Every time they saw that coat, they were reminded that Jacob loved Joseph, and they resented it. Now, Jacob's favoritism to Joseph was very unwise. He was not doing anybody a favor by loving Joseph best. It wasn't good for Joseph. I think it was obvious that it fostered a spirit of arrogance in Joseph and also it caused him to be hated by his brothers. So he wasn't benefiting Joseph by loving Joseph more. It certainly didn't, didn't do Jacob any good because he reaped the consequences of that and the heartache and grief that came as a result of the bitterness and the revenge and the resentment that those brothers felt toward Joseph and toward Jacob. In fact, it just created that kind of an atmosphere in their home. There was resentment, there was jealousy, there was hate among all of his sons because of this favoritism that was so openly displayed. Is there a lesson in that for us? I think there is. We should love each of our children equally, without partiality, without favoritism at all. And I think that oftentimes means making a deliberate choice to love equally. A, a deliberate choice, it needs to be a deliberate choice many times because every child is different and we tend to like certain personalities certain traits, certain attributes better than others. We, we probably tend to favor one over another if we are honest with ourselves. But if you love one child above the rest, you're not doing that child a favor. You're setting him or her up to be self-centered. You're not preparing them for to deal with the reality of life. And also you are creating an opportunity for strife and resentment in your home rather than peace and harmony. It doesn't benefit anybody. 
Psalm 139 says, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy, member, in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. God has created and designed every one of our children just as he wants them to be. He made the blueprint for their lives. He designed it. He created them with their personalities and with their, their unique ways, just like he wanted them to be. That's reason to love and accept each one unequivocally and equally because God has made them just the way he wanted them to be. So we have polygamy, partiality. Number three, reasons for these dynamics going on in Jacob's home. Passivity. Jacob seemed to be an, an aggressive and an intense person in many ways. If we read the stories of Jacob, that comes out. He seemed to know how to get what he wanted. He was willing to work hard to secure what he thought was valuable, what he wanted to possess. He worked hard for his wives. He worked hard for the cattle that he got from Laban. He did things that uh, were unusual to go out of his way to try to uh, get as much cattle as he could and so on. He, he was an intense and an, an aggressive person. Uh, he wrestled with the angel and got what he wanted. He got the blessing that he wanted. Uh, he was willing to do, to be aggressive and to do those things. But some, for some reason, it seems like later in Jacob's life, he seemed to adopt a passive attitude, especially about his sons. I don't have time to look at all, to read all of these passages, but uh, we know in, in uh, the story in Genesis 34, Jacob and his family are, this happened before 37, of course, but Jacob's daughter Dinah, it says, went out to see the daughters of the land. And we, and this uh, Shep, Shechem was his name. He saw her. This, this prince of the, uh, just from the land there, his dad's name was Hamor. But he saw Dinah and he took her and committed fornication with her. He loved her. He wanted to marry her. So he and his father Hamor came to talk to Jacob about marrying Dinah after he had committed fornication with her. Now Jacob's sons were, uh, were with Jacob when the Shechem and Hamor came to talk to Jacob about marrying Dinah. And from the story, it seems like Jacob stands there and listens and basically says nothing while his sons kind of take over and they begin to talk to this Hamor and Shechem and they hatch this plan. And they said, okay, uh, we will... We will let Dinah be the wife of Shechem. 
But there's one thing you have to do. You have all the males in your city are going to need to be circumcised because we won't give her to be married to an uncircumcised man. And of course, this was all part of the plan that they were going to to uh, proceed with. And they said, if you don't, if you're not willing to be circumcised, then we're taking Dinah and we're leaving. You can't marry her. So these men agreed. They said, okay, we can do that. They went back to the city. All the men of the city were circumcised. And while these men were still recovering from their circumcision, Simeon and Levi, two of the sons of Leah, went back to that city and they killed every male in the city while they were defenseless, while they were recovering, while they couldn't fight back. Just, just a horrible story of, uh, of what they did there. And Jacob, well, the only comment he makes that, that is recorded that he makes is in chapter 34. After this all happened, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, "Ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me. And I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? So they justified their actions there by um, saying it wasn't right for Shechem to do what he did. But maybe I'm reading too much into the story, but it, it, it doesn't seem like Jacob, first of all, he doesn't confront Shechem or Hamor about the, what they have done to his daughter. He says nothing. And then while his sons hatch this plan to murder these people, he says nothing again. He does nothing. There's another incident soon afterwards. This is uh, soon after Rachel died. Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, went and committed fornication with Bilhah, who was Jacob's wife or concubine, whatever you want to call her. And again, Jacob, it's not recorded anyway that Jacob did anything. He didn't say anything. God commanded Abraham in Genesis 18. He said, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. In 1 Samuel 3, God also said that he would judge Eli because his sons were vile and he restrained them not. A good father is not a passive father. A good father will be actively engaged in the life of his children. And I see that as a failure on Jacob's part. He kind of left them do what they wanted to do. His sons were a bunch of loose cannons. That's what they were. They, they, they were running around and, and doing what they pleased and living the way they felt like immoral lives. Every child needs their father to give them guidance, encouragement, correction in life. Our children, fathers, our children need us to be involved in their lives. And we need to play with them. We need to bless them. We need to encourage them. We need to commend them for the things that they're doing right. We also need to be willing to correct them and discipline them. An active and engaged father will bring security that every child needs 
for life. There's, there's just a security that comes with a relationship between a child and his father, his or her father, that is right. That brings security to that child. Okay, my fourth point, and again, what caused these dynamics in Jacob's home? Patterns of deception. Jacob's name means heel catcher or supplanter. Okay, that's according to Strong's. Jacob was a manipulator. He was a conniver. He knew how to get what he wanted. He was a fighter. He used those skills to get what he wanted. And then, and in the entire story of Jacob, there's, there's this pattern of deceit and deception that follows him. And I believe catches up with him in his life. After we could have read on there in, in chapter 37, the brothers did what they did to Jake, to Joseph. They sold him into Egypt. They took that coat of many colors. They dipped it in blood. They tore it up. They went back to Jacob and said, look, we found this. Is this Joseph's coat? Just lying through their teeth, you know, deceiving him. And he fell for the whole scheme. He, he believed it. Well, I believe he was reaping for a lot of the things that he did in his life. Jacob was a schemer. He manipulated, he deceived Esau out of his birthright, out of his blessing. He deceived Laban with the cattle and things he was doing there. Uh, it was a pattern that was going on in his life. And perhaps it was a pattern that went back even further than that because Abraham did the same thing. Twice he lied about his wife. And... Uh, This was something that was going on. Perhaps a better description would be patterns of sin that were happening because there was also this thing of immorality in the family with his sons and the things that, that uh, Reuben did with his um, wife Bilhah, his, his concubine Bilhah. There was the story of Judah later on in Genesis where Judah had a relationship with his daughter-in-law and the things that happened there. There was, there was these things, these patterns of sin were going on in Jacob's family. But the blessing of it all is Joseph was one who broke those patterns. Joseph, when he was tempted in Egypt, he refused. He could have so easily given in to that temptation. What reason did he have not to? Here he was a slave in the land of Egypt. He had no idea what the that the future would hold anything for him but a slave for the rest of his life. But he refused to give in to that woman. He broke that pattern of sin that was so rampant in their family. He was honest. He was a man of honesty and integrity. We don't see anywhere in the life of Joseph where this pattern of deceit was followed through with, but he was rather a man of honesty, integrity, moral purity. He was an example of that. I'm not trying to advocate a uh, sins of the fathers type of thing where, the, where we're responsible for the sins of our fathers, but I believe that as we look back on our lives and the, on the history of our lives, none of us are perfect. 
there's there's sins that uh, can be passed from generation to generation. But we can be the ones that break that chain. We can be the ones that say we're going to be free from those things. We're going to we're going to build our lives on Jesus Christ and break those patterns of deception, patterns of sin. I'm sure there are other things that probably contributed to this unhealthy dynamic in Jacob's family, but those are some of the things that stood out to me. The home is one of God's gifts to us. There is, there is a tremendous blessing of being able to grow up, as I look back on my life, being able to grow up in a home where there is security, where there was, where the design of God was followed in marriage, where the parents are engaged with their children and they love their children. There's no partiality there. There's no favoritism. They love them all the same. And where the patterns of sin are being dealt with and being broken. That's a home. If you can look back on your life and see those blessings in your home, you can be thankful to God for that. Let's kneel for prayer.